It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Theater in College Hoops. I am Subi. Riding solo today. We got an awesome interview, though, with you. Unfortunately, not able to include Taylor. You're listening to Theater in College Hoops. I am Subi. I'm going solo today. No Taylor, unfortunately, but the show does go on. We have an amazing interview to bring you today. We took a break from the previews and wanted to get a better understanding of the analytics uh, as it relates to college hoops. This time of year, we're getting a lot of projections from different websites. We're talking Evan Miyakawa. We're talking Ken Palm. We already got the AP top 25. We we're talking the likes of Bart Torvik. Jerry Palm is probably going to be descending from the clouds, but uh, we got a great interview, not with any of those folks, but someone who swims in the same uh, in the same pond as them. And it was a lot of fun. So excited to bring you that. But before we do, got to make sure that you know we are brought to you by Belly Up Media. Go download, subscribe, rate, and review us on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the day, Trayvon Hughes from Wisconsin. That's right. 06 to 10. Trayvon Hughes guard uh, for the Badgers. Pretty solid ball player. That team was pretty solid as well. Record didn't necessarily show it. Uh, I think I think one of the years, the 08, 09 year, they went 20 and 13, but they had a pretty decent team. They got John Lohr, who had a nice NBA career, Joe Krabenhoff, Jason Bohannon, but Trayvon Hughes, someone I wanted to highlight here as the college hooper of the day, was also Big Ten all defense. Check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com and make sure to follow me at CBB Theater to find out where the feat is. You should also follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel. Let's open the curtains. Shoot, Paul, the runner! Loose ball! It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to fight! 
All right, we got a wonderful episode upcoming for you. A lot of fun. We were able to sit down with the owner, founder of Haslametrics.com, Eric Haslam. What a blast. What a real, real treat uh, this interview was. So much fun. He's just such a gregarious, uh, I don't want to say loud, but because that has a negative connotation, but he's just so joyful. That's the biggest thing that I, I got from from speaking with Eric is he truly enjoys and loves what he does. And a little bit about him, he's he's got a nine to five. He's a he's an engineer, uh, but he applies what he knows and and we go into a little bit about what he taught to himself about projections and rankings and what we can expect from his website. So again, I want to shout out the website, haslammetrics.com. That's H-A-S-L-A-M-E-T-R-I-C-S.com. Uh, and we were able to speak with Eric, who is a huge Badgers fan. He's from Wisconsin. We get into him trying out for the team, uh, ultimately unsuccessfully, but there are some funny stories there and and his interactions with Michael Finley and and Stan Van Gundy. Again, I'm still kind of reeling that Stan Van Gundy was the head man at Wisconsin for a year. But Eric was a blast, and, and he talks to us a little bit about what goes into his projections and his models. And it's really fascinating stuff. Truth be told, I don't have a background in, in, in this field, right? I'm an English major, which is insane, and I don't even speak that well. But learning about what goes into his website and and the work that he does and has been doing really for the for a little over a decade now is nothing short of remarkable and it was a lot of fun uh, and 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 we break down what it means to uh view the game in, in an analytical scope but also how are we able to balance that with our gut he's got a really couple of really good uh comps and analogies as it relates to analytics. So I don't want to delay this any further. Let's dive in right now and get to this great interview with Eric Haslam. All right, we are so fired up to welcome on to Theater in College Hoops, one of the most reliable metrics men when it comes to college basketball, a self-taught genius. Yes, I am going to use that <laughs> word, a self-taught genius in the college basketball analytics space. Hailing from Wisconsin, the owner of HaslamMetrics.com. We're chatting with Eric Haslam today. Eric, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing I'm I'm doing really tremendous. We're three weeks out from the season. How we can are I not be doing just well? like that? I'm like, it's it was just the middle of April. And I'm like, I have this beautiful you know, Wisconsin summer in front of me and it is amazing how fast these years go by now. It's like I get that. It feels like 15 minutes. It's actually like seven months. But for me, it's like 15 minutes. And that's the marathon all over again. So, yeah, we're, here we are, you know, three weeks out, knocking on the door of the season. It's nice chatting with someone who also is in the Midwest when you have to really take advantage of those those summers and springtime because Indeed. that calendar's turning. Is it not? Where are you right now? Where in Wisconsin are you? So I'm in a town, uh, the village of Oregon, which is about 10 minutes south of Madison. Anybody who doesn't know Wisconsin very well, Madison is in the center of the state, um, east-west-wise, but it's more southern. Um, so it's it, we're probably only about an hour, hour and a half from the from the Illinois border. Um, so I'm about 10 miles south of the University of Wisconsin. So yeah, I, I, I graduated from Wisconsin. I, you know, if I if I want to go to a Badger game, I'm 15 minutes away. It's a, you know, a good place to be. I'm not in the middle 
of all the hustle and bustle of Madison, but I'm just on the outskirts. So I kind of have that little space, the cushion that kind of keep me on the outskirts, but at the same time, I'm close enough. If I want to be around a lot of people, go to a lot of cool events, Madison's full of them. It's the best of both worlds. And we're going to get to your time in Madison and your <laughs> beloved Badgers, I think in our communication and everyone knows this, I've made reference to this. I feel like once every three episodes about how I'm still heartbroken over the <laughs> NCAA tournament uh-huh. uh, lead eight games between what 2013 and 2015. But mm-hmm. I'm sure uh, that, that was thrilling for you. Oh God. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I just remember, I mean, considering the drought that Wisconsin basketball used to be, I mean, I was there in college when they made the first NCAA tournament in 47 years. And luckily they kind of came out of, you know, that, that hibernation and actually, you know, they had their first final four in in the year 2000 and they had all that success with, with Frank, the tank and Sam Decker and all that. And uh, man, those are great times. It's, it's, it feels like the team uh, or the program rather has taken a little bit of a step back, but I'm hoping to kind of restore things back to the, to the elite level here in the next few years. The big 10 is going to be a real treat to watch. And we actually just finished up our, uh, our preview. And I think somehow, some way Wisconsin is kind of flying under the radar, but we're going to get into all Mm -hmm. of that, Eric. Uh, We touched a little bit on the timing of it all, right? We're only three weeks out now from Mm -hmm. your perspective, right? As someone who covers the sport from an analytic perspective, uh, is there a particular time of year during the season that, gets you most revved up like is it right now when everything's so green is it the middle point of the season where you have data points is it the end of the season talk to me a little bit about what that looks like for you I think it's kind of fun right now a little bit now I'm I'm a person that'll say you know I don't put a whole lot of stock in preseason baselines or preseason polls and that includes my own meaning you know AP poll or any analytics poll I'm not a big fan of them. I put them out there because people like talking to people love rankings. I always joke and say, you could rank the, I could rank the items in my fridge right now. And you'd probably have a hundred likes on Twitter. It's people just love rankings. Um, From a, just, you know, my perspective is I'm not a big fan of the preseason rankings, but it's still try to, you know, it's fun to try to gauge how solid these teams are going to be. And then at the end of the year, you kind of measure and say, well, I was way off on them and I was pretty close on them. Um, but I think right about, you know, when we get to around the middle of December, all of a sudden we start shedding a lot of that preseason baseline. A lot, most of it goes away and you become more and more reliant on the performance rankings, the stuff that from actual performances, that's when it's really starts to get really interesting because you're now seeing how good these teams legitimately are, not just some sort of well, I think this team will be pretty good and they're bringing back this much of their lineup. Now you have evidence of how these teams are meshing. Um, So I really enjoy probably late December, um, a a really fun time for me. And then you get into conference play. And then, of course, um, things really take off in like March. Everybody, of course, goes nuts for the brackets. Um, I have never worked on those days, probably going back to like 1999 or 1998. I've never worked. I always take those days off. I've probably beaten the hell out of my liver one too many times on those days. And as I'm knocking on the door of being the age of 49, um, anybody who is that age can probably attest to that that is, you know, the older you get in life, the tougher it is to hang all day watching basketball. I almost fell asleep at the bar on Friday last year just because I was so exhausted. I had to go take a nap in my car for 30 minutes because I was out at the bar for 13 hours straight the day before. And 
I'm like, it, it just gets tougher and tougher. But the whole ride starts to finish. It's like I always call it like, a, you know, it's a little bit of a marathon, a little bit of a sprint. Um, I lose a little bit of sleep. But then, you know, I look at it and once April comes around, I get seven months off again. So it's nice to kind of rechannel, go through it again, rechannel, and then just kind of rinse and repeat every year. The off-season length really is perfect because the second UConn cut the nets down and I finished up crying, really, uh, watching watch chatting <laughs> moment, which is an annual tradition. I'm like, all right, let's take a breather uh-huh. and unplug just a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it, every phase of the year really is so much fun. And I, I, I'm totally with you as it relates to the first couple of days of the tournament. I actually publish a yearly blog where I give tips and tricks and of, of those include like knowing your channels. And uh, the most important part though, is trying to get some air, get some fresh air <laughs> yes. between that first window of game. Cause there's, there is just maybe about 10 to 15 minutes where you can get outside and, and breathe the air. But yes, you know, especially, I'm, I'm, especially I'm, if you get 70 degrees. So I've been out there. I've had, I've had both sides of the coin. I've been out there in 25 degree weather in the middle of March here in Wisconsin. I've had 75 and I'm like, I'm, it's the best thing ever is when it's, you're able to wear shorts to the bar in March. Now that doesn't happen very often. That's probably one out of every 10 years, but when it does happen, it's kind of like, man, here we go. It's spring has finally arrived. And you know, the season's wrapping up the, the tournament's going to get going um those are that's always a great time of year but boy does it get busy with the bracketology and oh but you know the whole thing's a marathon it's a lot of fun though absolutely and i'm really excited to diving into what goes into your numbers your projections your models but eric i want to focus a little bit first Mm -hmm. on you personally Uh, how exactly did you fall in love with college basketball and the tournament was there a particular game a particular player tell us a little bit about that well i think it goes back to the 1990 ncaa tournament i think the 1990 ncaa tournament was the first time i ever did the brackets and i think that was the first thing i really fell in love with and not only that i was you know it, there were so many compelling storylines uh people my age that will, will remember that tournament that was the year that loyola marymount had lost hank gathers and Loyola Marymount made that great run. They, you know, they they they're given an 11 seed because they had to cancel that WCC tournament, if you remember, because of Gather's uh, death. Well, they go out in there and they 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 hang 111 points on New Mexico State in the first round as an 11 seed. They play the um, the the defending champion Michigan Wolverines in the second round. They hang 149 on them. And then the next the next game they play Wimp Sanderson in Alabama and he takes the air out of the ball, uh, basically uses up the entirety of the forty five second shot clock and Loyola Marymount wins that game sixty two sixty. Eventually they get blown out by eventual champion UNLV who was absolutely just loaded, but that whole tournament was so much fun for me. So many little storylines. I remember I remember my brother had taken Missouri to win the whole thing. And they get ousted on the the first morning, um, losing to Northern Iowa. And that game was on ESPN back in the day. That was before the days of CBS. Um, there was the regional semi game. I still remember watching uh, Michigan State against Georgia Tech. That was Judd Heathcote against Bobby Kremens. Um, Just uh, so many compelling storylines. And it was my first exposure to the brackets. And I think that was kind of what hooked me in. And from there on, um, as long as it was around, I was always the first guy to get that USA Today the morning after Selection Sunday because it, back then we didn't have the internet at our fingertips. We had to rely on going to, like to the USA Today, the newspapers, to give us a rundown. 
And it's not like we had seven channels to watch basketball either. So you had to rely on these team capsules in the USA Today to tell me about George Washington. Tell me about Southern. Tell me about, you know, a Mississippi Valley State. You'd have no idea otherwise. But that 1990 tournament was was magical to me. Um, it goes back to how much character the tournament had back then. Every floor, and I wish they would bring this back. Every floor, they would go to different colleges, and they'd never change the floor. So it would be the home court. And it would be so memorable memorable because every court had such a unique feel to it. Kind of makes me sad about how they kind of universalized everything nowadays and and kind of put just put that plain old NCAA background. I really do miss the days of all the character and all the – all the, the just the, the beauty of having all those different courts. And I wish they'd go back to that. Yeah, it, it, it is. There's some part of, of watching the tournament that you just associate time period, like games. I feel like was the, was the Ron Lewis three for Ohio state. Like I think they had oh. the big NCAA logo at that yep. point. Yeah, right? I think they did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just and, you, you associate courts with different types. Like I think, what was it? Uh, Adam Morrison and key arena. Yeah, right. Uh, it was right, and that's for me. I, I look at games back in like 1994. I know, like I believe it was uh, Wisconsin when they finally got their first win in the tournament in like 47 years. It was in, I believe it was in Ogden, Utah, um, and that was Weber State in that orange court with a big round stadium. And I'm like, that's my memory of that court. And there's so many like small little courts, and I, you know, I see James Forrest hit a turnaround three at the buzzer for Georgia Tech to beat USC. In 92, I was at that game at the Bradley Center. So that was in Milwaukee. So whenever I see that replay, I'm always like, man, again, so much character with the tournament back then. If I had my way, I would go back and just bring all that character back. But, you know, I'm sure there's reasons behind it. You know, (laughs) money, money, money. You know, I'm sure there's reasons behind it. But, man, I would love to go back to those days. That really rules everything. I fact check me here. I think the Sorrentine shot. I'm from the New England area. Oh, so I love it. Yes. Shot was in Worcester, Mass. I think at the DCU Center. Uh, I I just know he hit it from the parking lot. That's yeah, all that's I remember. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about a team and your alma mater that has graced the NCAA tournament quite often, especially as as someone uh, in my age bracket has been watching, and that's Wisconsin. But I still want to mm-hmm. intertwine that with your collegiate experience. So I'm doing a bit of research on you <laughs> and it appears as if you tried out for Wisconsin five times uh, during, time. during your tenure there, <laughs> take us through that any and all stories. I got to hear it. You know, for whatever reason, people always like gave me a lot of credit for it. Oh, you took you. So yeah, you're so brave to do it. I was like, I don't, I'm not brave. I got nothing to lose. I'm trying out for a division one team. If they say no, I, I mean, even if I'm a pretty good basketball player, they're probably telling people no. Um, so I go out and I try. The first two years I tried out my freshman and sophomore year, I tried out, and Stu Jackson was the head coach. And I forget who was running. Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy might have been running the, the tryout. But it, it, for each of my five years, the number of people grew that true, uh, tried out. And I think maybe that first year it was only like 13. By the time I was a – in my fifth try was probably in, in excess of 40, but it was pretty small my freshman year. Well, I didn't really get anywhere those first two years. And then all of a sudden the, uh, you know, I, and I kept kind of working at it. I was a rower at Wisconsin. So I was on the rowing team for four years that allowed me to build up my strength, but I was still playing a lot of basketball too, improving there and, you know, working on my vertical, working on my shot. 
And so then um, Stan, or excuse me, uh, um, Stu Jackson leaves, and his assistant is Stan Van Gundy, who comes in. And this is the year after the Badgers finally make the tournament. They actually, you know, win a game, and then they lose to number one seed Missouri in the second round. So Van Gundy's in charge, and I go and and try out there, and we're probably talking 25 guys for this one. And I'll, I'll remember this well. Hey, Van real, Gundy, real quick, actually, Eric, how many roster yeah. spots are available? Oh, you're talking one if you're lucky. One's, I mean, one. I would say you're probably – they even say that out loud. We're probably not going to keep most of you. We're probably looking for one guy, maybe two at most. Okay. So, okay, what do I got to lose? So I go out there, and I actually play really well. And um, when the end comes, there's a guy who was running it named Brian Hecker. That was the assistant for for Stan Van Gundy. I think Brian Hecker is – I looked it up. I think he's now a uh, – director of basketball analytics for the Mike, the Miami heat, if I'm not mistaken, but he was, he was the assistant back then. He was a, I looked at the picture of him and I'm like a lot older than I remember him being back then, but he was a young guy. So the whole thing wraps up. He, he brings everybody around and says, Hey, I want to, you know, thank you guys for coming out. We really appreciate it. We're going to talk to a couple guys, bring a couple guys back. And, and then, um, you know, thank you guys. And he points to one guy over here and he says, I want to talk to you and I want to talk to you. And then I turn around and I feel a little tug at the back of my shirt. And he goes, I want to talk to you too. And I thought that was, I, I couldn't believe it. And, and he, so he basically pulls the three of us aside and says, so we want to bring the three of you back for a second tryout. Um, it's going to be during the day. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. It was going to be 11 o'clock on a, on a Thursday or something like that. And I remember I was just sky high. I think this was a Sunday when we had the tryout. So anyways, <clears throat> fast forward 72 hours, and I am stricken with the worst cold of my life. And I, I, I kid you not, I woke up. So here's the thing. People who don't know this about Wisconsin rowers, our practices are at 6 o'clock in the morning. And we practice all throughout the year. Now, obviously, summers we're not on campus, but – you know, even when we're not, we, the, the water's frozen in in uh, in Madison, so we row in the tank inside, or we're running stadiums, or we're running outside. We're always doing something. So when this tryout occurs, it's going to be on a, at eleven o'clock, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm no big deal. I'll go to I'll go to rowing practice, and then I'll go to the you know skip a class if I have to, and then I'll go to the second tryout. Well. I was stricken with the worst cold I've ever had in my entire life, so much so that one of my ears was completely plugged. Um, and I got on the phone. Thankfully, my assistant rowing coach, his name was Jeff George, not not the quarterback. Not the quarterback. Yeah, okay. not the quarterback. His name was Jeff George. He understood it was kind of my passion and my ultimate dream to do this. So he said, go back to bed. Don't come in. Sleep as late as you need. Good luck in your, in your tryout today. And I appreciated him for doing that. Um, but I got there and I remember just, you know, four of us and they brought in a fourth guy, um, his, and the guy who eventually made the team, his name was Sean Carlin. And I just remember the, like warming up and, and Hecker saying, all right, guys, just warm up. I want to see layups. He says, if you can dunk it, do it every single time. And so we're just going up there, just dunk, dunk, dunk. And I think the idea was we want to wear you out. And, and so, um, me not particularly feeling well with a really bad cold probably didn't help, but I was, I, I did not play that particularly well that on that day. And they took Sean Carlin. Great story. I, I always kind of laugh and go that cold was God's way of telling me that I was never meant to be a college basketball player. 
Um, sometimes God, I always say it, God, sometimes God sends you little signs and I always kind of take it as that. Um, but that was, that was my, my moment of, um, of my shining, my one shining moment, so to speak at Wisconsin basketball, because after that, if you recall, Stan Van Gundy got the ax after one season because 13 and 14, right? Yeah. Well, it was, I mean, they came back with a largely the same cast from the team that played really well and went to the NCAA tournament and they flopped in Van Gundy's one year. And I think Wisconsin already had their eyes on Dick Bennett. And so I think that performance was enough for the brass to say, all right, this isn't going to work. And they wanted to bring in Bennett. So the last two years, Bennett was coach. I tried out in, in similar circumstances, but just never got the notice. Um, so I'll always remember and cherish that, that junior year, because for like three days, I was saying to my brother, I'm like, I'm going to be able to play with Finley. I'm going to be able to play with Richard Griffith. And man, I can't imagine just kind of doing this. I thought that'd be the coolest thing in the world, but alas, it was not meant to be. What a neat story. There's so much to unpack there. Be honest with me now, Eric, mm -hmm. as I follow up here, be brutally honest. If you were hundred percent healthy, you think you make that team? No, no, I don't think I, I'm, I'll, I think I can use that as an excuse all day long, but part of me thinks that Carlin was kind of the, 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 the chosen one to begin with. And so the fact that they brought me and two others who actually tried out and I don't, I, honestly, Carlin may have been there on that Sunday, um, but I don't think he was. I, I, I seem to remember seeing this guy and being like, I'm, I don't recognize him. I know these two guys cause I played with them, but that guy, I don't know. And I think they brought him in. And so maybe all we were was kind of the guinea pigs, so to speak, kind of the litmus test to see how good he really was. Um, and he flat out was better than me. So I'm not going to make any bones about it. I had my opportunity, but I, I just wasn't good enough. I think you're just being bashful, but that's all right, Eric. <laughs> I mean, I, I can only see you sitting down right now, but you look very tall. How tall I, are you? I'm about six, six. And I go about, you know, it's funny because at the time when I came into college and, you know, rowers are picked out because of their height. I was about six. I'm, I'm about the same height as I, you know, back then as I am now, six, six. But it was about 185, 185 or 190 when I came into college. Now I'm probably closer to 255. Um, and that, you know, I think by the time I left rowing, I had put on probably 30 pounds of muscle and probably a little bit of extra beer fat or something like that, because I was probably 230 by the time I was a senior. So I'd probably put on about 40 pounds in college. A lot of that was muscle. Um, but, but yeah, just, uh, um, unfortunately I, I just didn't, you know, I, I had the size and I probably just didn't have the hops. I didn't have the speed. Um, I, I had pieces of the puzzle. I had the ability to stretch the defense a little bit with my, with my shooting ability. But beyond that, I think I have to be realistic and say from a division one standpoint, I just could not cut the mustard. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I appreciate your candor there. Uh, it, it is crazy though. And maybe I'm, I'm speaking to our age gap here, which I apologize for. Nope. <laughs> for me growing up watching basketball, obviously I'm a huge NBA guy, but first and foremost, college basketball. But for me, when I hear names like Michael Finley and yeah. Stan Van Gundy, I think of them on NBA courts, on mm -hmm. NBA sidelines. And so when we were doing the Big Ten preview, I, I knew Michael Finley went to Wisconsin, mm -hmm. but I had no idea Stan Van Gundy 
had a cup of coffee in Madison. Yeah. I always thought he was just, you know, the Florida teams with the magic and the heat. And mm-hmm. then, you know, moving on to Detroit. Uh, I, I had no idea he he coached at the collegiate ranks. Yeah. Yeah. He, I, he was an assistant for, for several years. And, and then I think he, like I said, he had just had that one year that was really just a flop. I remember it was odd because they, they started the year and they, I want to say they played, I think it was Eastern Michigan they played. And I remember the shock was like, we went to Eastern Michigan and you think to yourself, well, Eastern Michigan, granted, was a good team that year, a pretty decent team. But Wisconsin got like blown out of the water by like 25 in a game that everybody really kind of expected them to win. And that was kind of the start of everything. And the, and the, the team just did not come together, even though they brought back Finley and Richard Griffith and, and I think Brian Kelly might have still been there, and Jeff Peterson and Andy Kilbride. A lot of these guys were still there, and for whatever reason, the the magic just did not come together um, in the '95 year the way it did in '94. I promise we're going to pivot to uh, your site and your your, your work <laughs> within analytics, but I just have one more question. I think it's uh-huh. always fascinating because I've had the the privilege of speaking with former players and people that have shared a court with high level basketball players. I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at a guy like Michael Finley, when you saw him, was the discrepancy and the difference just jaw dropping to you? Cause he was a tremendous pro as well. Yeah. The, at the time I really, you know, I never really saw him like in a practice. I think we probably had our tryouts after the team was out there in practice, but we never really got too close. The one, the, the story I have with Michael Finley is I shared an anthropology discussion with Michael Finley. So I, I don't know why I would have picked. I'm an engineer. So I had to take my electives and I thought to myself, I answer like a fool. I'm like, hey, anthropology is going to be Indiana Jones, right? Very cool stuff. Well, anybody out there who's listening, who's thinking about going into anthropology, I'm like, be prepared for some of the most boring nonsense you're ever going to come across. It was, it was ridiculous. So, but anyways, you had the big, huge um, uh, lecture hall. And, you know, there people would pack in, but then we would have discussions as well. And that's where Michael Finley was in my discussion. And the only thing I remember about Michael Finley is Michael Finley would come in and he would plop himself down in the front row. And this was like a little room, probably had seven rows of seats and each row probably had, you know, a dozen, 15 seats to it. So it wasn't that big, but he had always plunked front row and just kind of sit there. And I just remember once um, whoever the teacher's assistant was, said looked and said michael what you know what do you think about that and i remember michael's reaction was this <laughs> dead and, fan and just my and then i think she might have said michael what you have any thoughts on this i don't i, I mean i'm sitting there behind him he was right over here i'm watching and i'm kind of like you can just say anything dude and i don't i don't think he ended up saying anything and after what i she i she tried twice and then i think she gave up and then she said, okay, anybody else want to chime in? And that was the last time she ever called on Michael Finley in the class. Bless that TA's heart for uh, for giving <laughs> tried, it the old She literal. tried to get him involved, but he, he, a, he didn't want any part of it. That was my recollection. Movie. Unless he muttered something like, no, I don't, or I don't know, but I swear he didn't say anything. That's so good. That's so, it's a literal college try from the TA. <laughs> it so, was a college try. So Eric, let's talk a little bit about your work and the website. So mm-hmm. I mean, we, we just... You, you set up a, a beautiful scene in the classroom. I want to go to your classroom now. Okay. We're yeah. all, all of our listeners are in your classroom, professor Haslam. Uh, <laughs> tell us about what the work that goes into your models and your projections, essentially 
paint us a picture of when we go to your website, we see the numbers, we see the, the sausage in the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, what goes into it, though? Yeah. So what I tried to do is when I tried to take a step back years ago and say, I just want to do this myself. I didn't I don't want to ever rely on other people's numbers and telling me how good they are without knowing, like you said, what's in the sausage. I kind of want to make my <laughs> make my own sausage. And so I decided I didn't want to recreate the wheel. I didn't really want to use a lot of the the four factors that it was, you know, founded by Dean Oliver. I kind of wanted. So, so what to, are those four factors? Let's the, let's start there. It was the effect. I believe it was the effective. If I can remember them all, effective field goal percentage was one. One was offensive rebounding uh, percentage or offensive rebounding rate. One was, um, I believe, turnover percentage, and the other was God. What? what um, there's offensive rebounding. I, I, I'm I'm forgetting here what they all are. Um, I, I, I don't want to I don't want to put you on the spot. And I know you said that's not what you wanted to adhere to, but I think yeah, free throw rate, for, yep, turnover rate, offensive rebound rate, and free throw rate. I want to say we're we're part of it. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to base everything on um, you know different types of shots, shot selection, and then the performance in all these different positions. So I you know I I looked at things back then and. I, I didn't see a lot of people breaking things down from like the mid range and in closer. And I was like, well, I'm looking at play by play data and it says, Hey, it's a layup. It's a dunk. It's an alley-oop. It's a jumper. It's a three pointer. I'm like, well, it's not a dunk. It's not a layup. It's not a little baby hook. It's not a three pointer. It's gotta be mid range. Right. And so that's kind of what I just I broke things down that way. And then I'm like, well, I can measure the performance of how these guys are doing in all these situations and all these different locations, including free throws as well. <clears throat> and on top of that, I said, okay, but how can I also kind of break out situations? And I thought to myself, what situations would result in maybe either a higher or a lower field goal percentage than normal? And I came up with two that would result in higher. One would be quick points off of second chance rebounds, so basically an offensive putback or points quick off of off of steals, turnovers, such that you're basically com- the team is committing a turnover and you're scoring within a set, set of seconds later, maybe in like within the next seven seconds. And if you break that all down into kind of this matrix, you can kind of get a gauge of like how often they acquire these opportunities. Where do they, how do they perform shooting under these circumstances? And that's kind of the foundation of doing this. And when you do this, all you do is you end up creating this spider web of comparisons. Like, so I will say if Wisconsin plays Illinois and Michigan plays Illinois, you use Illinois as the constant and you now have a comparison between, you know, Wisconsin and Michigan. That's the idea behind the analytics. And once you kind of just kind of put it together in your mind and then just take it step by step on paper, it's kind of like building a castle and you start with a few bricks and hey this looks good and that's interesting i have a comparison here and now how can i translate this into a a value that people can use and you just kind of build step by step and and that's kind of the thing if you if you see the project for the castle that it is it probably never gets done because it's a lot of work but when it's a you know a, a, a task that you're passionate about you really can break it down and you enjoy each piece and then as you get to the very end you you're basically just touching up what you've already built. And that's thankfully at the age of 49 now going on 49, I'm at that point where I can touch it up and I don't have to do any heavy building anymore. It's fascinating stuff. Really. It is Eric. And so I'm, I'm, I'm <clears throat> the first thing that came to my mind when you mentioned quick points and that example of points off of a turnover, I'm just thinking someone shoots a passing lane 
and that's breakaway layup, right? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> it's so funny sometimes how the game evolves. I'm I'm now thinking, huh? What if someone shoots that passing lane and it's like a two on one, and instead of the wing cutting to the hoop, they flare to the three point line? Like, do we take oh, into yeah. account? Like, I just feel like the evolution of the game. Uh, I don't want to say breaks these these some of these different analytical aspects, but it's so interesting because if you told someone from the 50s or 60s, hey, this is what they're doing on three-on-ones, mm-hmm. they would never believe you. Oh, I know. And and it's funny because I, one of the things that I really appreciate about, um, about like just kind of growing from the analytics, you know, Rick Bird, um, who was the Belmont coach, was probably the one of the first guys that I remember that ever really kind of encouraged the mid-range too. And it was one of the first things, it was early on, probably 2016, when all of a sudden a buddy of mine said, hey, I saw you were written up in the in the basketball times. And I was like, I don't know nothing about that. I didn't talk to anybody. I'm like, how did I get in there? <clears throat> and they said at the time, they were like, well, Rick Bird from Belmont quoted or said something about your site. And I was like, I have no idea. I never talked to Rick Bird. I have never had communication with Rick Bird. Um, but apparently he caught wind of me and <clears throat> and started using some of that, that uh, mid-range data. And if you look at those teams, he was very much when it came to mid-range attempts by his offense, there were very few, and he highly encouraged the defense to allow that mid-range two for the opposition. But now, so then a lot of people adopted that. You see that more and more, but now we're taking it a step further. Now you have coaches that are saying, now everybody's encouraging these mid-range twos. What if I taught my players to be become particularly excellent at draining these mid-range twos. So now they're really focusing, knowing that they're going to get a, more opportunities than than they, maybe 20 years ago at those mid-range twos. They're now actually taking it a step further and encouraging their players to practice that so that they can sync them reliably. It, it, it's crazy how the game, I want to say the game is always evolving, but in some respects, it's also cyclical mm-hmm. in a yeah. sense. It is. Right? Like it, it, mm-hmm. at some point we're going to get back to where we were in the early two thousands. And uh, we're going to see the game that we kind of grew up, grew up watching. I'm, but I mean, I mean, you're sorry, seeing, sorry. You're, you're, I was going to say, you're seeing it kind of in football too, with like, yes. how, look how, how people are going for it on fourth down, you know, that back in 1995, that never happened. If it was fourth and one at the opposing 27 yard line, you're kicking a field goal. Now, nobody does that anymore. Everybody's going for it. And I still think the next, phase of college basketball is coming the thing i've never understood um and i think it's someone's gonna take it and run with it at some point is i never quite understood when a player gets his third foul with say four minutes to go in the first half they sit him and i look at the second foul eric I, i i right and i look at it and go why don't you play him and risk the fact at least he's out there and and giving you something and risk the fact that you'll get another foul as opposed to guaranteeing he will do nothing for your team because he's sitting on the bench. That's always kind of one of the perspectives I've had, but it's really tough because groupthink, even in the year 2023, is, although you, you're going to look stupid if you let a guy foul out with 18 minutes to go in the game. I look at it and go, so what? You're, you're, you're going to sit him for 12 minutes or 18 minutes or 15 minutes anyways. Why don't you just play him? And, and and use them up and use up as many minutes. It's possible the guy could get three or four fouls and could go the rest of the game without a single foul. It's possible. Yeah. So why would you sit him? That's always kind of my next level thinking. And I kind of want someone to kind of take that and run and say, 
take that take that mindset and say that at a press conference like he's sitting on the bench he's doing nothing for me if he, at least i have him on the court he's out there providing up and i, I would rather use him up so to speak even if it's all five fouls, then saying, well, I'm going to sit him, so I guarantee he'll never get five fouls, but then you're just sacrificing tons of minutes as he sits on the bench. It is an interesting thought. I hadn't really thought about that whatsoever, and I mean, at the very least, like you said, he's producing something, and it may not be on the defensive end, which is where yeah. majority of those fouls are you would expect to be picked up, but if you can utilize him on the offensive end, that's pretty good. Now, Defense might just attack him in the paint and he can't do anything, but I see exactly what you're saying. But, you know, but then think but then take that to the next level where all of a sudden you're like, okay, that offense is now going to focus on him. Sure. How can you utilize that to your advantage that you know that they're going to go to the guy who has the most fouls and they're going to try to go to him and try, you know put their best offensive player in there and try to draw that foul? How can you as a defense try to benefit from that mentality? And that's always like it is. It's it's kind of this. This 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 next you know next level of thinking game, and that's why I really appreciate the game of college basketball. Is that it's, it, it really becomes a chess match? Uh, excuse me, a chess match at some points. It's 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 really fun and very intriguing. You're right. You're absolutely right. So when it comes now, Eric, to self teaching and how mm-hmm. you gained this knowledge, I'm very interested to understand how you did that. Like, what goes into the self taught aspect of where you are today. Take us back to when you first broke ground. Oh boy. You know, it goes back to just kind of learning statistical methods. And I had some background in it. And I took some stats classes. I mean, my majors in electrical engineering. Um, and it's kind of funny. Um, and you know, um, stats guys are kind of a quirky bunch. You're not a stats guy, are you? So I, I, I mean, will get like, to this. I'm, I'm, you, I certainly err more away from Stuff. I mean, like I, I meant, I meant more along the lines like of the background um, that I have. Oh, yeah, like a college background. Is it like in statistics? Correct. It is yeah. not. I'm an English it major. As a matter oh, of perfect, that. good. Then I can make fun of statisticians. <laughs> my thing about statisticians is, you know, you, 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 we talked about like, and you can read on my site about like the stepwise regression and variable selection and things that, that I've tried to do over the years. The issue I always have with statisticians is if you ask 20 statisticians their opinion on one matter you will get 20 different answers and you'll never get an answer that actually makes any sense. They'll always say something along the lines of the null set has not been disproven. And so I always kind of joke around and say, this is why I can't stand statisticians. I'm an engineer because we may be wrong, but at least we're going to give you an answer. We, and and that's kind of the joke about it. So, so I, I used to look at different statistical methods and, Oh my God, it would go forever and there was never a right answer. Oh, well, you should, you know, do the backwards uh, uh, selection or the forward selection of your variables, or you should just throw everything that's, that's important and deal with the noise. And it doesn't, you know, you can read, like I said, 10 different responses from 10 different statisticians and you'll never get anywhere. So you just kind of got to make a call at some point. That's, that's the engineer in me. Um, so it was just, I knew what I wanted to do. I just wanted to see if I could actually pull it off. And, and I, and, and it was just kind of like, once you have it in your mind, you know, maybe there is a, a technical term for what I did statistically, but I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. I just kind of coded it the way I thought it should be done. Um, I, I did not end up using like any of the linear regression models for the in season stuff. I do use that for the preseason baselines. I have no choice. I have to. Right. But um, but during the the regular season, all my stuff was just a lot of comparative analytics, and then kind of picking out the data I want, 
twisting it to kind of say, okay, you know, these are shots in near proximity shots, you know, right after a offensive rebound. And these were mid range shots in a set defense. You can kind of all just kind of have that and then create your comparisons. And then that turn in turns right into the numbers. So it's probably a little bit different. Um, maybe even a little bit ham handed, a statistician might even say, but again, like I said, I'm kind of old school. Um, I had the background in computer science, I had the coding knowledge. I, I've had 26 years of SQL experience with Oracle databases. Um, it was just something, I, and of course, I love the game of college basketball. So it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, just, you know, when you have that passion, you can kind of do anything. And it was just, you know, it was a lot of fun building that castle brick by brick. I'm glad you mentioned what you did about engineers. My dad's a chemical engineer, okay? Uh -huh. And so my entire life, I've heard this one mantra of his, and you essentially stated it. He would always say, often wrong, but seldom in doubt. Yes, yes. We will take a stab, and we might be wrong, but at least we took a stab. We're never going to say something like, the null set has not been disproven. So <laughs> he, told, he would tell me that like when I was five or six years old, I, I remember my mom would be like, he doesn't know what the hell that means. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But no, it's, it, it was, it, you know, it, I, I can really, uh, I can really say that, uh, you know, the engineering background came into play, but um, you know, probably a lot of the electrical engineering stuff that I learned, you know, the, the, the details of electrical engineering, I probably, I'm an, I'm still, you know, an electrical engineer today in the, the utility industry. Um, but you know, a lot of the stuff I learned in college was more training my mind than something I would actually use on a day-to-day -day basis. <laughs> certainly, certainly. So I, there's one thing I'm having trouble grasping here, Eric, and I'm hoping uh -huh. you can help me better understand. It's the data gathering part. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when we look at analytics in the NFL, that's across 32 teams, certain amount of players. When we do that in the NBA, it's some, something similar. You can do that in college football, mm -hmm. something similar or probably more, but still something similar. You look at the amount, the sheer volume of teams and players in college basketball, it is absurd. Help mm -hmm. me wrap my mind around, like you talk about that base, that foundation of building the castle. Well, you got to gather this data, right? Yes. How, and, and you used like Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. That's three teams in an absolute ocean of teams help me wrap my mind around this eric well the the way you do it first of all that's this is where my coding background comes into play because then you can write scripts that kind of do all this stuff and you can basically say hey i'm going to hit all of these different web pages within the span of 30 seconds and and once you hit the web pages all the code is there all you have to do is basically take a what's called scraping and bringing it back and then saving those files and then once you have them you can manipulate them any way you want you can parse through all the data, pull out the pieces that you want. That's essentially what I do. Um, there are two different ways to do it. Scraping the, the, you know, there's the gray area of the legalities around scraping, but it's kind of, you know, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> or, or, or you can go to, through someone like stats LLC. And I've kind of, you know, looked at that uh, a little bit closer and it sounds like at the minimum that is five figures a year just to get one year of data. And I was kind of like, well, you know, years ago, I'm like, I don't have just $10,000 burning. It's probably more than 10,000, but I don't have five figures burning a hole in my pocket. So I was kind of forced to do it the other way, which I, I think is kind of the more popular way of doing things. Um, I did invest in a, um, in someone who offered some data via an API a few years ago. I think I coughed up uh, a one-time fee of $1,200, but 
I'm not going to even mention their name because they're not worthy of me spending my time on them. But let's just say you get what you pay for gotcha. and they've been a disappointment. So I kind of, res- you know, kind of resorted to going back to the scraping. But for the time being, you know, I've been doing it now for going on, what, nine, ten years. So it it works. The downside is sometimes the formats change and it puts you on the shelf for a little bit. But. You know, again, comes back to the coding. If you can just, you know, say, oh, they changed this format and I have to start looking for this tag instead. Now you can do that. And it's a little bit of a pain in the butt, but, you know, there there are worse tragedies in the world. Very interesting. Very interesting. So we talked about the evolution of the game, Eric, and not just on the court, but yeah. the players that play and, and essentially off the court. Okay. And when you look at rosters on a year over year basis at this juncture, save for maybe Purdue this year, no roster is identical. People are either yeah. taken off uh, to the pros or the next level, or most likely they're transferring. We got players that are on their fourth, fifth teams and I'm not even exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't, I don't care about where p- folks stand on that. I'm curious to know from your perspective though, how does that impact your projections and what goes in to what you're spitting out? Because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it in a sense that, you know, I could be the, one of the best players in, uh, the Mid-American Conference, right? Or the mm-hmm. uh, the MEAC, let's say the MEAC. Right. And I transfer over to Bill Self in Kansas in the Big 12, who had a banner year last year. Yeah. How do you account for my stats that, that you're looking at from my previous year as I move on to presumably better competition? And the reason I bring that up, Eric, is because I'm looking at your website and y- y- a direct quote is, these predictions are based on teams' prior performances. Mm-hmm. And again, it's not the exact same players. Help me better understand that aspect. So that part of um, of the prior performances largely means the stuff once we get into the season. So eventually what we – so I think when I actually wrote that up, I probably wasn't even doing preseason baselines at that point. I think that's largely based on – it's it, you know, all the data as, go, as we go along. Usually by the time Christmas comes along, you're talking probably three-quarters of the team of, – of the teams out there have burned off all of their preseason baselines because you know over time it starts with 100% offensive base or preseason baselines and then you just kind of burn it off slowly until you know basically the start of the new year it's gone everything is based on past performance unfortunately we don't really have any that to go off of on November the 6th so we have to kind of you know start using that linear regression model that I talked about and then try to pick the the right independent variables um, such as coaching changes, what were their numbers last year on offense and defense, how many returning minutes, returning points, how many, uh, what were your recruiting rankings, how many five stars are coming in, how many four stars come in, what are their rankings, things like that. And those are that, that's that variable selection that I talked about, which is, can be so tricky. Um, but your, your question before about how do you handle that? It's, you basically just scale them up or scale them down. You kind of have a conference strength. Um, I guess it's a little bit different if you're going to, you know, you, UConn versus DePaul. Obviously, there's a sure. little bit of a distance there. But um, for the standpoint of just making conference moves, I usually kind of just treat the conference as a whole. So I look at the average efficiency of, say, the SWAC. And if a guy who is averaging 17 a game in the SWAC is going to the Big East, there's an efficiency ratio there. And you basically scale down or scale up if you're going from, say, the Big East to the SWAC, you're doing the same thing in reverse. That's kind of what you do when it, when you're dealing with those transfers before the season. 
Um, but you know, that that's the gist of it. You just kind of pick those independent variables the best you can. And again, like I talked about earlier, it you're you're it's just a it's a rough estimate. We really don't know. Like I, I I'm been going through some, I have this little this little book here. You see, I have one of these every year. And it probably goes through about 60 of the best teams in Division One college basketball. And you can see that I just I'm, – I'm still old school. I got all the all the notes in here um, about all these different teams. Um, but it, it's, uh, you know, trying to, you know, go through all this and see all these names that are coming from different locations. You're like, okay, that guy's coming from Penn, and that guy's coming from Harvard, and that guy's coming from, from Iona. You can tell I was looking at – at uh, St. John's today. St. John's, Jordan uh, Dingle. Yes. That was the first one that came Right, yeah. yeah. Um, but you, I mean, but you see that with so many teams now. It's just amazing to me. I was, I'm just, I can't believe how basically, you know, in a lot of situations, head coaches, the majority of their starting lineups are all transfers from yeah. other teams. And the big thing nowadays is taking from those smaller conferences and moving them up, especially if guys are averaging 17, 18, 19, 20 points a game. They're ready for the next level, and you bring them in, you plug them into a starting lineup in a, in a Power 6 conference. It's almost like a different rental system in the sense that yeah. like we had Calipari and one and done. So you go there, yeah. you spend a few sem- a semester or two, you're off to the pros. Terrific. Now I'm looking at Arkansas and Eric Musselman. You want yeah. to transfer? We have open, open arms for you. So tons of transfers there at uh, at Arkansas. I got to correct myself. I don't know why I said Mid American Conference. the The conference I was oh. thinking of was the Metro Atlantic. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's what I was referencing. Yes, but, the the well, there's the MA, the MAC, and the MAAC. So that's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. I, I I mean, conference tournaments don't get me started on that. I love them, but <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, Eric, in my eyes, okay, you got like. In basketball, you got like the Jordan and LeBron debate, which holds the most vitriol. And then I swear there's the eye test versus analytics debate, oh, yeah. which oh, yeah. comes right after. So <clears throat> you said, are you a stat guy? I, I like recoiled like a snake at you. And I said, well, no, I don't know if I'm necessarily a stat guy when that wasn't the context in which you were asking the question. <laughs> right, right. But so let me bring you up to the podium. Get on whatever soapbox you want to. The eye test versus analytics debate. I'm just going to let you run free on I, your general thoughts. I, I love the question. And I'm, you know, I'm about as 50, 50 as you're going to get. And, and it, that answer probably surprises a bunch of people because I'm kind of, you know, the analytics guy, the analytics nerd who is putting on all these numbers out there, but I'm, I am not a believer. And I'm, I tell people all the time, I'm like, whatever you do, do not gorge yourself on the analytics. And I think we're in danger of doing that a little bit. We see that in baseball sometimes. And, and I don't like it at all. I think the, I once said on Twitter, I said that analytics should be like digging a grave. Six inches is not enough, but 600 feet is just plain overkill. Oh, that's brilliant. And, and I feel like we're about three, there are times when I feel like we're about 200, 300 feet deep at this point. And I'm kind of like, again, the, the analytics should be treated like kind of evidence at a crime scene. It, it doesn't necessarily mean the person is guilty or not, but I think you can use it to learn something, but it's not going to be an open and shut case. There are still things with your eyes that you can tell. How does this team behave in this situation under pressure? How does this team behave against certain paces? Are they blown up or not on the court? Are they sucking wind in the last five minutes of a game? Little things like that. How is their body language? There are certain intangibles about the game of basketball or in any sport for that matter 
that you just cannot put into numbers. And that's one of the things that I always kind of remind people is don't ever go out there and just because my analytics say, hey, it's going to be 76 to 72, that that's exactly what's going to happen. And you're mad at me when it's, you know, a 17-point loss the other way. It does happen on occasion. Um, again, you know, I, I, I can tell a story. When I was on the rowing team at Wisconsin my senior year, over a span of like a 10-day period, we raced uh, the Naval Academy like five times, different races. Um, one, a couple times at Eastern Sprints, once in a dual race and twice at IRAs. I think we beat them by open water once. We, we, we beat them by like a boat length once. We beat them like three boat lengths. Then we beat them by a seat. We lost by like two boat lengths. And then we beat them by two boat lengths. What changed? It was the same eight guys in pretty much every single circumstance. What changed? And that's kind of the thing, the intangibles. And I'm like, this is what why like the preseason baselines, no matter who creates them, they're really not going to give you too much because there's so many intangibles that even if we knew the variables to select, to put in our linear regression model, there's probably no way to measure them. It's probably not doable. So that's why I always say, analytics is going to give you a little bit of evidence. It's going to something there's intelligence behind it. No doubt about it. It's going to probably fly in the face of a lot of groupthink, which I think is a really positive thing about, about the analytics. But at the same time, I don't think you should gorge on it. I think it's, I think you got to use your eyes. You got to use your opinion and you still got to have a gut feel for what is going to be the, you know, who's going to be the right choice and kind of form your opinions based off that. You never know about the variables. You know, I know this one guy who was trying out for his school's basketball team and he, he met all the qualifications, but morning of the tryout, he came down with a nasty illness and a sickness and he didn't make it. Does that sound familiar? You never <laughs> that does, know. That does sound familiar. <laughs> you just never know, Eric. Um, yeah, you, you don't. And that's the thing. It's, it's, you can't really rely. Human beings are just very, you know, weird creatures. We're just weird creatures. We just don't have it on certain days. And I tell that to my wife. I'm like, I tell her and go, I'm, I'm like my wife. I said, Grit, I'm, I'm crabby today. I, I'm like, I don't even know why I'm crabby, but I'm telling you that I'm crabby because I want you to be aware that I'm crabby. And I, and I'm not, it's not because of you, but proper expectations. Oh, yeah, exactly. Right. That's a whole marriage and all that is well, a whole different. We can, we can <laughs> talk a, two hours on that. You can't, you can't put numbers to that. But, um, you know, I, I, another thing about the eye test versus analytics, and I hear this in all sports, but when I'm watching a broadcast, it, it just makes me feel a little cringy when we hear announcers, they say, oh, there's the analytics play just because it's yeah. like a little different than what the norm is. It's like, oh, this is this is the analytics. play. <laughs> like it just sounds oh, so yeah. lame labeling it that. And it's and I'm saying to myself, maybe this is something that they've practiced in this. Maybe this is genuinely what their play is. I, I think it's just kind of that group thing and group think is very dangerous. And that's why I kind of like I said, the argument for analytics is there is no group think there. We, we design how you want to work your data and then basically hit the run button and you have no control at that point. Obviously you have, it's, it's somewhat subjective because somebody might pick a, a different set of independent variables than I do. So there's subjectivity involved, but I think the nice thing about the analytics is it gives you a fresh viewpoint because you know what happens is some guy talks about what the way, way, way too early top 25 is going to be in April. And then someone hears that and then takes tweaks these two teams and that becomes their way, way too early 25. And then 20 people hear that and that becomes their way too early 20. And it's, it's just, all it is, is, you know, propagation of groupthink time and time again. And that's where I'm like the analytics come into play. But at the same time, like you said, analytics, 
You know, how many times have I seen a pitcher, you know, give up three hits in seven innings, but oh, he is, he's had his pitch counts. Then you bring a guy in out of the bullpen and he gives up six runs in two thirds of an inning. And you're like, yeah, great call there, analytics. You got to have a feel for the game for sure. And, and look, rankings, preseason rankings, you're preaching to the choir. There is no sport in my eyes where preseason rankings are, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Less meaningful or yeah. me as, meaningless, <laughs> right, as, as co meaningless as college basketball. Can someone right. tell me where UConn was last year in the preseason rankings, where FAU was last oh, yeah. year in the preseason rankings, where Miami was and where SDSU was? Right. I, I challenge you to tell me that you saw the preseason rankings last year and were like, those guys are final four contenders. Uh, how about, uh, or, or North Carolina for that, for that matter. Number one in the country at this time last year. You're absolutely right. You, you nailed it. So yep. Eric, this has been amazing. I want to get you out of here on some quick hitters. Cause I, I know sure. I've been chatting your ear off, but let's have a little fun here. Okay. Uh, first of all, personally, there's only a few uh, individuals that do what you do and do it as well as you do in my mm -hmm. eyes. Uh, I'm look. I'm talking about. I, I think you run in the same circles as a Jerry Palm or a Bart Torvik or Evan Miyakawa. Have you been able to cross paths with any of these folks? Very, very limited. I mean, I've probably of of anybody. I'd probably say um, Bart would be maybe the one I've probably talked to the most. I haven't spoken to him in a while, um, but I I don't really know Evan very much. I certainly don't know Jerry Palm at all. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. I'm almost kind of like the grassroots thing. I'm always I always joke and say uh, I told Trilly Donovan in an interview. I said I'm kind of the uh, the Drudge Report of uh, of college basketball. If you ever go to Drudge Report, and I'm keeping politics out of it, but I'm <laughs> I'm talking look and feel. I'm talking. We go to the Drudge Report site. It's straight out of 1999. I and but the thing about I love about Drudge Report was you go in there and if you want to get stories that you want to read about, you just go in and they're all right there. You're in. You get the stories you want. And you get out. That's kind of the point when I was going for. I'm like, you want to come to my site? I want to give you the information you need so you can get on with your life. I don't want you to get lost in a jungle. Like, like some of these other sites that you can get lost. In. I'm, and I said, I kind of go with quality over quantity. Um, so it's it's a little bit different. I know, like I said, uh, some of the other analyst guys are breaking things down more and more. Um, I'll leave that to them, that that they're the ones, they're a little bit younger than me, a little bit more vibrant than me, uh, perhaps a little more eager to find every answer in the world. For me, I'm, uh, I've seen my better days and I've, I've, got, I've got better things to do. I'll leave that to the youth. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, Eric, I've only been chatting with you for 55 minutes. I've never chatted with any of those other gentlemen, but I can almost assure you they're not as vibrant as you. This oh. has been such a, such an enthusiastic and, interview. I've had, and had that's, a blast. And that's why I'm the worst engineer ever. People look and go, <laughs> they, they look at me and they're like, you know, you're not a, you're not really an engineer. You don't seem like an engineer to me. I'm like, why? Because I can talk to people. And I'm like, I, I joke and say, and I, I shouldn't brag about this, but I think I was bottom 15% at, at Wisconsin in engineering. I, well, you should, eat I, you for I sure. shouldn't, I shouldn't brag about that, but I, <laughs> I but, but, but my, uh, my, I'm not going to tell you my GPA, but let's just say it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not that great. It's, it's, it's a little below three. Let's just say that. Remember, you're talking to an English major. So if you plot me in some of your classes, I would be maybe even for sure below you. But if you definitely got the IQ and, and I've come to find out you have the EQ uh, as well, Eric. So, hey, let me ask you this. I, I was lucky enough to have. Uh, Rocco Miller on yeah. who is a tremendous bracketologist and, and does really amazing work in scheduling uh, games and, and doing a lot of great behind the scenes work. But I, I asked him this, I said, what was the most shocking uh, bracket reveal matchup that you've ever seen? And he, I think he had mentioned 2016 Tulsa where he was like, 
I had no idea yeah. Greg Gummel was going to say their name. But for you, uh, Eric, what is the most surprising, I guess, quote unquote, upset that uh, that you've seen? Like all of your project, mm. and it could be a regular season game. It could be yeah. a conference tournament, NCAA tournament. But I'm saying every fiber of your numbers and your gut told you that this is a slam dunk but the end result was opposite. And I suppose you could go with the UMBC's FDUs of the world. Feel free to do that. Yeah. But are you kind of getting where I'm, I'm going yeah, with yep, this? Yep. And I thought, you know, obviously those were the first two that jumped to mind. But the other one, you know, I'm, I guess I'll, I'll reveal a little bit of recency bias because I, it's funny, as you get older, you really lose grasp of even things that happened two, three years ago. There was a time back in the 90s and 2000s where I can remember back nine seasons and tell you all the details. Now I remember, like, barely remember what I had for breakfast. And, and if I can get that right, it's a good day. Uh, but no, I think back to last season, and I, the, for whatever reason, that game between uh, Iowa and Eastern Illinois early last year really strikes me as like, wow. Oh, that was God. one that I what was Eastern Illinois, I think, ended the year for me ranked number 346 in the country. And remember that Iowa team was not, you know, this is not Luca Garza or Keegan Murray, but still a pretty darn potent Chris Iowa Murray. team. That was right. Chris Murray was still there. Um, and for them to just play like that and just get beaten so badly wow. by a, such a bad team, that is one game that just for whatever reason just stood out to me as like. That that was the weird game of last year, um, even more so than maybe the the well, fairly Dickinson and Purdue. I that's probably takes the cake. But if there was going to be a one A to go with that number one, it's probably that Eastern Illinois game against Iowa. How quickly I forget in this sport because you're right, Eric. And I think from a line perspective, from a point spread perspective. That's the biggest upset in college basketball history. I think it was 30-some-odd points. It was. I believe that was right. I think they were talking about that a lot on Twitter, too, and that's why I kind of I think I kind of left that little bookmark in my brain because it was such a, a drastic difference from, from what the spread was going to be. It was not even close. And I think it was – I think the spread was, what would you say, like 30 or something like that or 25? And and I think Eastern Illinois won, may have won by double digits or like nine points or something like that. So it was – you know, light years away from what it was supposed to be. Jarring result. I'm glad you, yeah. you brought that up for me, <laughs> Eric. Uh, when I think of the tournament and for guys that have done it as long as we have, you fall into one or two camps. You're either a paper bracket guy, you fill it out with pen and pa paper, or you go on Yahoo, ESPN, and you click. Where do you land? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I, I think my days of paper are gone. I was probably one of the last guys to hang on to paper. So I finally, uh, I finally bowed to the the digital gods and I've kind of made my picks online right now. And I'm, I, I, I try to stick with the bracket of integrity as they say, but I have violated that rule on more than one, on one occasion. Um, I used to probably throw about four or five brackets out there. Now I'm maybe down to one or two. So I've gotten better. Um, I always had this fear of missing out. The moment I had one bracket and my team was gone, I was afraid, like, oh, man, now I'm not going to enjoy the tournament anymore. So I did four or five. But now I got to the age where I'm like, well, if I'm out, I'm out. I'm just going to enjoy the tournament as it unfolds either way. So I'm down to one or two now. Yeah, well, as a point of pride and you know, not being able to live with myself, if Arizona ever did make it, and win a national title and I didn't <laughs> pick them. I, like I said, I could never live with myself. I always choose Arizona, no matter the seed to win the national title. And so some of those years, it's a good thing where, you know, they end up losing in the elite eight mm -hmm. uh, other years, like last year, they lose. So Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, but speaking of brackets and uh, results, 
Do you have do you have a best bracket that you filled out and a worst bracket that you can think of? Well, the best bracket would probably actually be last year because I kind of came out really pushed that narrative like uh, the Haslametric special of the teams that are going to be the ones you want to pick that have shown the most success because I actually dug into that over the last few seasons was top 10 in offensive efficiency, top 35 in defensive efficiency. And that yielded three teams. Things did not work out too well for the first two, uh, Purdue and Houston, but the third was UConn. And I and Arizona was actually borderline. They didn't qualify, but they were right on the outskirts. But I looked at those three teams and I said, of all the teams top to bottom that really had the fingerprint of a team that I thought could go the distance, it was UConn. So in this bracket pool that I was in, I think I was my buddy's bracket pool of only, I mean, it was a, it was a smaller pool, 30, 40 people. I think I was the only one that actually picked UConn to go the distance. So that worked out quite well for me. I finally won a bracket poll in like my 33rd year or something like that. It, my wife even won. I got deck furniture still for my <laughs> wife winning a bracket pool. She won like $300, $400 back. It was the year that Louisville went to the final four with Illinois and North Carolina. I think that was 04 or 05. So you want I to mean, talk about another heartbreaking elite eight loss. Yes. For the, for the yeah, oh my God. Yes. I remember that game all too well. My buddy was, my buddy uh, was and um, worked for the athletic department for Illinois. So he was at the game and he remembers that game a little bit differently than you do. I'm sure a little bit more fondly. Well, and but, a, a full uh, circle moment here that was on DePaul's court. I remember the court yep. very vividly. That's right. It was. But um, so that was my best bracket. Worst bracket, I'll say 1998. I, for whatever reason, put my full, put my full faith in Billy Tubbs uh, coaching that Texas Christian team that was 14 and 0 in the whack and 27 and 5 going into the season. I thought I was going to outsmart everybody. I'm like, I'm taking TCU to go the distance. They got beat in round one by Florida State. It wasn't oh, no. even close. <laughs> I love that you're able to remember it. Uh, and, and look. Kudos to to UConn and and that pick as well. I feel like, it, although maybe you don't need to apply the analytics, I can just be like, uh, is it once every other presidential administration? I'll pick UConn at some point here. Yes, yes, <laughs> just, I, they're I, just a blue blood dynasty. Yes, yes, and that's what you got to do. And again, and I think you got to stay faithful to Arizona. At some point, things are going to yeah. turn their way again. It's very kind of you to say. I, I think <laughs> so too. Uh, can I get your Mount Rushmore of Wisconsin basketball? Mount Rushmore of Wisconsin basketball, I would probably say, so I thought about this at first, and I'm like, I'm going to go with Frank the Tank, Frank Kaminsky. I'm going to go with him. You mentioned Michael Finley. I think you got to go with him. Alondo, uh, and I'm going. With I'm only going players only. I'm not going coaches here. Sure. Um, I'll go Kaminsky. I'll go Finley. I'll say Alondo Tucker, just because I think he was the all-time scorer. And then I'm really torn on the fourth one. Um, I was going to say Sam Decker, because I always, I think like half of Mount Rushmore, you know, should be, rewarding that team that went to the final four and so sam decker would be the other one but sam decker's overall um career numbers at wisconsin are not really in that top 10 i would say the guy i really liked a lot and i wish he would have stayed all the entire way was devin harris yeah. and i would probably pick devin harris to be my fourth um so i'll probably go in that order kaminsky finley tucker and harris with decker getting an honorable mention some great players. And speaking of players on that Final Four team, Nigel Hayes, uh, did he beat the shot clock versus oh, Kentucky? Absolutely. He had another three or four seconds to spare. <laughs> They're not. Oh, I thought you were a numbers guy. It's all, so all sour grapes. He, let, it was, he had that gone. No, I'm not mean. And, I love uh, it. You, know, you, you can't. And there's no lie detecting on this, right? There's My nose isn't growing <laughs> or anything like that. 
<laughs> oh, you, you, you nailed it. I love that reaction. I got to assume you're a Bucks fan. Is that fair? Uh, completely fair weather. You're going to be disappointed when you hear about this. When no, that's okay. But, I mean, my question, I was curious here, instant reaction when I found out Damian Lillard was you, going to our second Ogden, Utah reference, actually, of the episode. You, you would be shocked at, at how little NBA I really watch. And I go, I really don't watch a lot of NBA. And people are like, really, you watch this and that? And I'm like, no, I'm, I mean it. You would really legitimately be shocked how little NBA I watch. I probably could count, and you and I'm not kidding about this. You could probably count on two hands the number of minutes in my life I've watched Dame Lillard play basketball. It, I wow. am I am dead serious. Um, I I know that a lot of people here like the Bucks. I mean, granted, I was a big Bucks fan in the '80s. I loved with Moncrief and Bridgman, Marcus Johnson, Jack Sigma. That was, but then all of a sudden we went through a massive drought with Milwaukee Bucks basketball, and I think I really fell out of love with the NBA. Um, with the rise of the Chicago Bulls, I was I, I love the Utah Jazz. I love that rivalry, but once '96 and '97 was gone, I just kind of lost my love for the game. And and I think I my, it's my opinion. You know, I still think that the reason I love the college game is because there's so many dynamic you know methodologies in play. Individualism is there, yes, but I think there's like the team dynamic where you've seen years ago where that a, a group of five no-names from Virginia can theoretically outplay three superstars from another team. Um, I've always kind of really appreciated that about the college game, and I think it's tough for the pro game to do that. And to a certain degree, it's not their fault. They, it's all they do. They are professionals for a reason. They are legitimate superstars. Um, but I, I can make the argument that said that kind of takes I, – I, I said to a buddy of mine, I'm like, is it fair for me to say that them being as good as they are kind of takes away some of the fun of the game. I always kind of made the point of saying, if I had to go see a guy and say, he's going to make a hundred three pointers in a row, I'd probably be bored. I'm like, I'd, by the time he hit 11 in a row, I'd be like, okay, I'm okay. He's just hitting shot after shot. I mean, what's, where's the excitement in that? And so I, I think that's part of my reason of why um, I, I, I kind of still prefer the college game. I still think they're kind of imperfect kids to a certain degree. And I think that's that's good for the game. And and I think you have to rely on that team element a little bit more in the college game. And that's where I, you know, I, I really found my appreciation for college. I can totally appreciate that. And I think it's just a, a, a different set of expectations, right? So I, I hate when people say to me, uh, how can you watch college basketball so much, you know, when the NBA is a much more refined, polished product? And I'm like, I know that. I, I know when I go to a, a lovely steakhouse, I'm probably going to get really good food, but sometimes mm -hmm. I want to stumble into the burrito place at 1am and get <laughs> flop. And if that means getting a St. John or St. Yeah. St. John's, uh, not St. John's, excuse me, St. Joe's like UMass turnover fest in the mm -hmm. A10. That's what I want. And right. I love that. I love that to me. That is my diet for the evening. You know, it reminds me of going back to that game I talked about in 1990 where, you know, um, and, and it was the 45-second shot clock back then and Loyola Marymount, who just hung 149 on the national champions, Wim Sanderson comes out and says, I am going to play this chess match where I'm going to hold on to the ball as long as humanly possible because I think that's the only way that I can hang with these guys. And for a team that hangs 149 points on the champions, and then you come back and play Alabama the next week and you score 62 on them? I'm like, I love it. I'm like, that's people could say all they want and say, oh my God, how boring of a game does that have to be? I remember watching that and thinking to myself, 
this is such an awesome chess match. They are literally taking the one thing that is like air to Loyola Marymount and they're sucking it out of the room because all they want to do is run and they are forcing them to go at just a, a, a the, the most pedestrian pace of all time. It was so much fun. And I love that dynamic. Um, I, I joke about Virginia games. I'm like, it's like pulling teeth, Wisconsin games. It's like pulling teeth. But I love the freedom that we allow these teams to slow things down as much as they want. Um, I get it. It's it's not the sexiest thing in the world, but I think that that variety that you bring in really adds to the element of college basketball. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Eric. Uh, college basketball is a family affair. Sports really are a family uh-huh. affair. You talk to me a little bit about how you got into college basketball, that 1990 tournament, getting mm-hmm. the USA Today. Uh, is your family into it? Like, Have you passed that on to your daughters and your wife? So, um, so I, I still get together with, um, my brother on the, when I talk about those days, like that Thursday and Friday, I know my, my, I have two, I have two older brothers and no sisters, uh, in Milwaukee. I know my oldest brother never works those days either. He's, he's usually not in the area though, but he's out watching games. And then my other brother, um, who's a lawyer here in Madison, he is also out with me on those days. So he's hanging with me now inside my house. Um, I have, I have two daughters. One's going to be 18 next month. And the other one is going to be 13 in February. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Um, the 18 year old, I think, uh, to a certain degree kind of likes the, the analytics side. I think, I think she, she kind of has a little engineer in her. I don't know if she's going to pick that in college. Uh, but she's very brilliant. She's very smart. Um, really sharp on the math and science. Both of them actually are. Um, but I think at this point, the 18 year old, she's becoming a big Packers fan. I think the when you're 12 or 13, you're not quite into the big sports stuff yet. I think my youngest daughter will get there. Um, so I think my oldest daughter has some appreciation for it. Kind of want to know what's kind of wants to know what's going on. Who's my number one? Who's is that team? You know, what did you pick for this game, Dad? What was your projected final score? That kind of stuff. I think she gets into that. Uh, but my wife. Not interested whatsoever. Not interested at all. I'm like, it's so funny. You know, I talked to so many of my friends who are married and like the, it, it's not just like sports, it's movies. The overlap on what your wife likes and what you like is like a sliver like that. And the same thing applies for like college basketball or pro football. My wife would mu- much rather watch Hallmark movies or watch Jimmy Fallon on, on the Tonight Show or anything other than what I'm watching. And so typically, unless the Badgers are doing really well and she's a Fairweather fan, she'll admit it. Other than that, she probably is not going to say, hey, hey, Eric, let's let's take in a, uh, a DePaul versus Providence game tonight. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah, that's it's so good, Eric. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it reassures me. So my wife is a UCLA alum, all right, and uh-huh. she does not care whatsoever. Meanwhile, I'm over here sweating Arizona versus Washington State games. But I remember a couple of years ago when they made their magical run to the Final Four as an 11 seed after I think they were a play-in team. Uh-huh. She's over here just like, oh, uh, we got a Final Four game. That's pretty cool. And she has that over me. And I'm like, I've been waiting for this for 22 years now. <laughs> Please yeah. let me have something. <laughs> something. And it's and it's so funny. Like I talked about my wife, you know, she's the one, of course, that, you know, um, and wins that tournament back in that, that bracket tournament back in 2005. And now I try to get her in it and playing and she won't do it anymore because she's afraid at this point that I might actually beat her in that. And she wants to hold that. I mean, like you said, 
they want to hold that over you. I swear. And they she went out like, on top. And, yeah. And she's, and, and she'll say, no, no, that's not what I'm doing. And I'm like, yeah, you're holding 2005 on me because you want a pool with 300 people in it. I may have won a pool with like 30, 40 people in it, but when you're winning a pool with 300, I'm like, I, I will never accomplish that in my entire life. But she did that in like what? Three attempts. She finished Crazy. in the money for like 150, 200 plus people. And the only reason she didn't win first or second place is because at the beginning she was like, how, you know, I want to take UCLA to win it all. And I'm like, please be serious. They're like, we're, <laughs> we're here to make money. They were, they're in the playing game. Lo and behold, like, yep. of course, and of course I cost her money. Correct, what do correct, I know? correct me if I'm wrong. I believe where they were trailing by double digits, the half of that play in game too. Was that Michigan state? I think if they were playing, if I think it started? was. Yes. Oh yes. my goodness. And they were, and they were, yeah, they were trailing by, yeah. And they, and, and if it wasn't for the, uh, uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the Gonzaga shot. Game. Yeah. Oh my God. Was. Yep. And yeah. that's another one. I'll always remember where I was watching that, but I mean, so many great memories of this tournament. That's why I love it. You're right. Eric, I'm going to get you out of here. I, again, I appreciate all the time. I've chirped your ear off. Let me get you out of here, though, on this very last segment. We do it with everyone. Okay. It's called Bring Them Up on Stage. Who would you recommend to come onto the podcast? Any friends, colleagues in the college basketball space, or maybe they're not in the college basketball space and just want to talk about college basketball. Anyone that you think would have fun coming on sharing some stories like you were so generous to do? Well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Rocco. Rocco Miller is great. Um, I call him the Ric Flair of college basketball, the, the jet flying, limousine riding, kiss stealing, wheeling, dealing, schedulologist, bracketologist of college basketball. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate the work he puts in with the, with the schedule. We kind of have a little fun with him on Twitter because, you know, he'll post everything out there. If Mississippi Valley State is playing Dartmouth, he'll put it out there and and everybody will kind of go and go, wow, I'm clearing my schedule for that one. But no, he's he, he really goes with the flow. Um, Rocco is, uh, I call him the Ric Flair because I swear that he just goes from spot to spot. He's visiting that team. He's visiting this team. Um, uh, just, you know, a hardworking guy, loves the game. Um, I'll throw out there uh, Blake Lovell, if you, if you know Blake Lovell, uh, does some work for Southeastern 14. Um, another great guy, Jim Maizano. I'll, I'll talk about him. He, he runs College Hoops Chat for many years. Um, very hardworking guy. Eli Hershkovitz from the Lions. Um, I'm going to be teaming up with him a little bit this year, going on his podcast a few times. Um, the, all of these guys just kind of heads down, hard workers, nose to the grind zone, grindstone, great guys. But more so than anything else, I think these guys are just pretty humble. And that's what I really appreciate on these people. Um, I, I, I think far too often nowadays you're seeing a lot of people who are in the quote-unquote media that are a little bit in, in for themselves. They're, they kind of dislocate their shoulder on occasion, patting themselves on the back. When I think of these guys like Blake and Jim and Eli and, and Rocco, I think that these guys are just have a love for the game aren't looking for glory. They just want to be a part of something. And that's why I truly appreciate those guys. Terrific stuff. Eric, I will be sure to reach out to them. I'm probably going to drop your name. Uh, I will give them deal. a shirt tug, but I'm going to let you go. This was such a treat. What a blast it was to chat with you. We're almost there. I cannot wait for tip and I cannot wait to see uh, your content. Tell us all again, Eric, where we can find your work. Again, I am at Haslametrics.com. I'm out there on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter or X. Uh, my hashtag out there um, is Haslametrics. 
You can find me out there going hashtag analytically final. That's the kind of the, the little tagline that everybody seems to like for whatever reason. But yeah, if you if you if you do a search on hashtag analytically final, I'm sure you'll find me. I love it. Thank you so much, Eric. I can't wait to chat with you uh, more as the season progresses. Until then, have a wonderful night and thank you again for jumping on. It was well. Take care, my friend. Okay. Want to thank Eric again for jumping onto the program. That was so much fun. Had a blast. It's really revving me up and getting me excited if I wasn't already hyped for college basketball season, which is right around the corner, folks. It seems like just yesterday we were watching UConn cut the nets down. And I think our first interview of the off season was with Josh Cohen, who we're going to give a special shout out to all of the folks that came onto the program uh, this off season, but Josh Cohen, uh, it, it seems like just yesterday we were interviewing him and that was our, our first interview to kick off the season. Who knows? Maybe we can squeeze another interview in here in the next couple weeks, uh, but really want to thank Eric again for taking some time and sharing some stories. It was, it was a lot of fun and, and very informative, very insightful. He, I, I made a joke that I was sitting in his class and he was the professor. If he, if he wanted to take a teaching route, in his career. Uh, I think he could do it. I, I think it would be a very interesting and engaging class, which cannot be said, <clears throat> excuse me, for a lot of professors, but thanks again to Eric Haslam for jumping on. All right, let's get on out of here though. But before I do, the top 25 was released a couple days ago. We got a ranking. And again, I said this in the interview, I don't really put much emphasis at all. <clears throat> Good Lord, my my! I got to clear my throat. I don't really put much emphasis at all on the top 25, but some thoughts. Again, on a top 25, that is purely meaningless and doesn't mean diddly squat, especially in this sport. First one, I am sure UConn fans are going to handle Marquette being ranked above them. Well, uh, Marquette landing at five and UConn landing at six. All I've seen this offseason outside like once UConn once UConn fans I don't want to say stopped enjoying their title but shifted focus to the to this year they've just been clowning Marquette saying why are you, why do you think you're going to be so good well it could be the fact that they return Big East player of the year Tyler Kolick Shaka Smart still there yeah they they lost some players especially Omex Prosper and it's tough to repeat like you can't not everyone can have titles out their ass. Let's let's let let's let some other teams feel some enjoyment, especially in the offseason. So Marquette landing ahead of UConn. I'm sure the Husky fans are are taking that quite well. Uh call me a party pooper, and I feel bad about this. I do, but I don't know if FAU and Miami should be as high as they are. I'm not calling them overrated. I don't want to do that because I think Jim Laranega is a wizard. I think Dusty May does a tremendous job. I think he is a up-and-coming star, which shouldn't be a hot take. I even said in the tournament last year, watch out for this nine seed, and they were criminally undervalued and underseeded at nine. But coming into this year, is FAU a top 10 team? I don't know. I, I have some reservations. I don't know if they're better than Gonzaga. I don't know if they're better than Arizona. Arkansas is always a fresh face, a bunch of fresh faces with the with the transfers. I don't know if they're better than Arkansas or AM. 
FAU returns their core really from their final four run. And really a, a team that could have gone to the NCAA title game to play UConn. I just don't know if I, I value or see FAU as a top 10 team, certainly ranked. I think that's just a bit high for my estimation. And again, feel free to call me a party pooper. Miami coming in at 13. I think the Isaiah Wong departure is going to really hurt them. Uh, who who wouldn't it hurt? But 13 seems a little high for me as well. Again, certainly believe that they should be ranked, especially coming off of a Final Four appearance. I think just out of respect, you should rank Final Four teams uh, the, the, the following year. And again, Jim Laranega, Taylor thinks Jim Laranega is going to win ACC coach of the year. So I think he's pretty high on the Canes. I just don't know if I see them as both of these teams as top 13 teams. I would say some, something more along the lines of maybe a 17 through 23. Um, <clears throat> that's where I would have expected to see the the South Florida teams. But again, what do I know? What do the rankings know? Those were uh, a couple of my my thoughts there. And then just lastly, uh, I'm going to hit you, hit you with some wordplay. The tide will rise. We got Alabama at 24. They are going to shoot up the rankings. I absolutely predict by December, we are going to see Alabama in a top 10 location. And we're going to look at the preseason rankings and we're going to see oh, what were they ranked prior to the season. And we're going to be a little shocked that they were a fringe top 25 team. They're 24. So I, I certainly expect Alabama to rise here pretty quickly, as a matter of fact. Um, and also Texas. Texas at 18 was a little surprising to me also. I think it's because we've heard so much rhetoric around some of the transfers that go to the Big 12, including Max Azemus. We talk about their backcourt with Tyrese Hunter. And again, this is a team that's coming off of a season where they probably should have gone to the Final Four. They held a very uh, very comfortable lead uh, in their Elite Eight game, I think, against Miami, and then just unfortunately wilted at the end. But you take all of those things into account, plus Rodney Terry with an entire full season, offseason, under his belt. and no turmoil, which is what they were expecting still not even a year ago. Or experiencing, not expecting. And Texas at 18 is is a little jarring to me. Like, I don't know if Texas is worse than Miami or FAU. Um, but again, we'll see. I expect Texas and Bama to rise. Uh, like I said, please don't come at me. Don't come down my throat. I I. I don't care about preseason rankings. It truly doesn't matter to me, but I suppose it is good fodder. All right, let's go ahead, get on out of here. Uh, things to look forward to. We got Big East previews coming up later this week. So excited to chat with another special guest, someone who's been on the program before and someone representing the Big East. I think you should know. Uh, here's a one last final hint. He is a hyena of sorts. So excited to chat Big East, and we'll catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops.